we all solve it because you're wrong and you just go I'm very wrong about that you can't come off talking about Leonard Cohen and then start talking about Zen Cohen's they're not bigger they're not clever they're serial killers it was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying beware of the leopard leopard, leopard, leopard. welcome to beware of the leopard your A to Z of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy I'm Mark Steadman and I'm the figment of your deranged imagination I'm Dennis the Myth and go stick your head in a pig I'm John Hickman, and I don't usually get invited to those sort of parties. We finished up the last of the H's last week, so let's begin with some facts hastily copied off the back of a packet of breakfast cereal. In the last moments of his dying coma, the hereditary emperor of the galaxy was locked in a stasis field, which kept him in a state of perpetual unchangingness. All his heirs are now long dead, and this has meant that without any drastic political upheaval, power simply and effectively moved a rung or two down the ladder, and is now seen to be vested in a body which used to act simply as advisers to the emperor, an elected governmental assembly headed by the president elected by that assembly. In fact, it vests in no such place. John, who really runs the galaxy if nobody that wants to can be allowed to? Almost certainly it has to be bureaucrats, doesn't it? Yeah... It's always going to be them, isn't it? It's always going to be. It's always going to be the be the bureaucrats, and that was that was probably one of George Lucas's more astute observations in 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 Star Wars, where there's the the really pretty guy who goes, um, uh, yeah, you know, like we've dissolved the Senate, and and uh, it's all going to be uh, it's all going to be on us kind of thing, and then Tarkin comes in and goes, regional governors are now in charge. It's that kind of breakdown into into civil servants running, running, running the show. I mean, the Belgians who are, who are a recurring character in, uh, <laughs> in Beware of the Leopards, uh, you know, they didn't have a government for how many years? Was it two years recently? Yeah, something like that after their um, uh, was a coalition collapsed. Yeah, yeah. Well, lots of governments collapsed. So, um, you yeah, know, the, the country ran really, really well. Um, and it ran really, 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 really well because there were just people just following processes. Um, now, Danny, this is an invitation to you to come in here <laughs> because you you are our bureaucracy correspondent. So uh, do you have a response to this positioning statement that I've made? I mean, yes, it's it's all... I, I agree. I agree. And I, even when there are people in power, it is still the bureaucrats. It is still um, the people that actually... Um, fill out the forms and put them in the proper places that are actually running the place because, you know, sometimes they don't fill out a form as quick as they quite need to because they know if they fill it out at that particular point, then um, something bad will happen. So they do use their discretion, like and it is the human buffer in um, uh, the chain of events. The trouble is mm-hmm. it's the same thing with uh, uh, the, the, the microcosm is the macrocosm, like mm-hmm. where um, people in power like power with a capital P attract the wrong sort of people. Yeah. People in bureaucracy, they attract the wrong sort of people. Um, as soon as they start getting, um, like an office manager, as soon as they start getting in positions with a little bit more power, they start ruling their fiefdoms with, um, uh, with questionable, uh, judgment. So yeah, the, the, it, it is, the, it's, the microcosm is the macrocosm. Like you, you, the people that are, that are attracted to the power mm-hmm. um, shouldn't ever have it at all. And of course, in, in Hitchhikers, we have the, the ultimate microcosm, macrocosm, bureaucracy thing, which is Arthur's house, the earth, um, and the fact that that all relies on paper trails and people finding their paperwork in the right places so they can they can achieve the things that they that, that they want to achieve. 
So, you know, Arthur's house isn't, isn't going to be knocked down if, uh, if nobody knows how to pull those levers and to get the paperwork filed. And likewise, Earth isn't going to be, um, be either. So it's people like the Vogons who, who are winning because they're, scooping up all the contracts to deliver all the they're basically capita in space i think it's interesting that um the the more bureaucratic a system is the more the um the more human it has to be to get on with it like so for example whenever i am in a new company or a new building or i have to change jobs the first person i i i'd be personable to and try and charm a little bit is the secretary the, the front desk secretary because they're the glue that holds the building together. So I have to be a little bit more personable, a little bit charming in this bureaucratic system to actually get a leg up. If Arthur Dent had been friends with one of the councillors, they could have tipped him way ahead about the destruction of the thing and maybe ease the process through. So the more uh, a process gets bureaucratic and uh, paper pushing, the more it actually relies on... Um, human interaction and charm and um, warmth um, to get along in it. Yeah, so it's it's sort of um, the the ideas of of uh, the different forms of capital that you need to be successful. So you need to be um, you need to have the the, the cultural capital and the education um, to to be able to um, navigate this field, which Arthur Arthur has, but he clearly is lacking something in terms of what, what we would call social capital. So he doesn't have the connections. If you've got the education and you've got the connections and you've got the money, then you've got the house. Yeah. But, you know, without, without sort of doing a bit overly on, on this and going, oh yeah, it's just bureaucracy and civil service. I mean, um, it, it is the fact that in, in history, if you look at, if you look at empires, one of the things that is problematic is is operating at scale, and um, you you have to rely on the systems and the processes beneath you to keep things running because you can't you can't have all those all those touch points, and that's why you end up with um, you know the uh, sort of like the honorific kings in India who are running things, but Queen Victoria is still the empress. What were they? The Raja. The Raj. So you know you kind of um, you you do create these. Um, these these are the sort of warden characters to do things, and then essentially it is the system of fealty between them all that is that is running everything. There's something quite nice and human about it, though, isn't it? Mm. It's something like that. Every so often, so, like some soldiers will march through your streets and go, "Right, you live in a dictatorship now," <laughs> and everyone's kind of like, "Oh, okay, um, all right," and gets on with their business, and, and then the, then they'll see tanks in their street and it's like, "Right, it's democracy," and everyone's like. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, fair enough, yeah. Uh, and, like, carry on about their business as, as best they can. Your delivery of that just reminded me of Chris Morris going, right, it's war. <laughs> <laughs> it's a war. <laughs> and now, all hail the new owners of the guide. Infinidim Enterprises bought the guide from Megadodo Publications. We learn about them in the last of Adam's Hitchhiker's books, and I was always taken by the name. Danny, is it just me who enjoys the double meaning in a soulless company called Infinidim, who also work across dimensions? Uh, no, no, it, it is it is quite a clever name, isn't it? And it's quite nice. Uh, the, the thing that I like best about it, I suppose, is that it's fit for purpose as a company name. Mm-hmm. And it still kind of rings true. Like it's not beyond our kit, uh, like our understanding right now that there would be a company called Infinidim. 
like if there was like I don't know a a, rem- a, a Bluetooth wireless uh, light bulb company <laughs> based on the blockchain. Yeah, blo- a blockchain uh, Internet of Things. Um, yeah, uh, light bulb company. You could dim the lights from your office at home. You could tell Alexa. <laughs> To dim the lights, so then we'll dim the lights of all your friends, so you can have a <laughs> shared dimming experience. Nice. The millennials will jump on that. You know, there's um, there's there's uh, the, the the new millennial craze for um, for subscription services. Um, the 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 nadir. I think we might have reached the nadir of this. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like it. There's um, a toothbrush company now that um, <laughs> you subscribe to your toothbrush. Wow. What? Why is it toothbrush and not toothbrush? Well, quite. I mean, why Why is it anything? The one that I saw the other day is, do you want a serial killer to send you a package of the first of every month? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. I, lo- I, I love the disconnect between the fact that, like, serial killers and films are, like, clever, like, 150-plus <laughs> IQ that will send you a clever, like, brain teaser when actual serial killers will probably just send you a... A shit in a box with a child's tooth in it, like, <laughs> like they're they're not clever and they're not classy. They're they're not bigger. They're not clever. They're serial killers. Fucking monsters. <laughs> yeah, we do we do like to romanticise them a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> maybe 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 if the um if the people that continue playing them are going to get caught out in the Me Too campaign, then maybe we'll start to lose our love affair with them. Maybe it's because, you know, they've been played by quite charismatic actors and as they start falling by the wayside of um, doing inappropriate things to uh, to people with less power, um, maybe we'll start, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll change our tune. Yeah, I did, didn't like him when he was a murderer, but... <laughs> I loved him when he was the president. Uh, now, before the next topic, we should mention that 40 years and a week ago, radio listeners first heard The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. As I mentioned last week, we've all written about our discovery and love for the series, so you can check that out at btlpodcast.com. And to mark the occasion, the new series is back on Radio 4, so if you've been listening, do let us know what you think. We don't cover And Another Thing, as it wasn't written by Adams, but if you're uh, listening and you have thoughts to share, you can email us feedback at btlpodcast.com. And now, to the heart of the heart of gold. The Infinite Improbability Drive is a wonderful new method of crossing vast interstellar distances in a mere nothing of a second without all that tedious mucking about in hyperspace. John, because I've decided you're the science correspondent on this show, why don't you (laughs) walk us through how this machine works by way of a refresher? Okay, so the the key guiding principle is is that when you can spin up the drive uh, to the point where it's at infinite improbability, you are going to simultaneously pass through um, every single point in the conceivable universe uh, all at the same time. And that's, that's the, that's the scientific hook and that's the scientific premise. Have I represented that? Okay. I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So um <clears throat> If you want to know more about that, then integral to it, as we've talked about many, many times, is uh, a nice hot cup of tea, or in fact, a really hot cup of tea. I, I believe was the uh, was was the phrasing because they tried it earlier on with uh, some tea that wasn't quite hot enough. Um, um, so, or any or any Brownian um, motion inducing liquid. Yeah, I I always took the really hot cup of tea as like um, 
just to, uh, just to make sure. <laughs> yeah, just just it's it's belt and braces, isn't it? Making it really hot. Yeah. Well, what's nice about it is, is that you've got this incredibly you've got like the the leading edge of science in the galaxy, and then you have this vague little thing at the end about how hot the cup of tea is. <laughs> just just really hot. Um, it, it, just make it hotter. Just make it hotter. Um, presumably, Starbucks tea would work particularly well because. Um, as uh, Brits, we we drink we drink a bit of tea, and I can't stand having a cup of tea in a coffee shop that's got an espresso machine because the way that they boil the water is horrendous. Yes. Ah, well, this is the problem because you're supposed to boil the water for tea, but you're if you boil it for coffee, then you burn the coffee. So you have to have two, you should have two different temperatures. You shouldn't be using water that's come from an espresso machine because you shouldn't be boiling the water to make coffee. So how come it's hotter when you have a cup of tea at the at Starbucks? A cup of tea is meant to be hotter um, than a cup of coffee. Isn't there just less processes? Hot water, cup, tea bag, but then you've got all sorts of filtering and pushing through, and that bit where they go like. That, that that isn't it just time so it's that thing that that's the thing that they use to make tea though in the in the in the coffee shop they don't use the the espresso pump which is coming through at the right temperature they use the wand and the wand is blowing hot steam into the water and and heating it really really quickly is that not how they do it i, I have to be honest no i've stopped idea. having tea i've stopped having I've stopped having tea in the starbucks and, and the costas and all these places because i never like their their tea very much so are you are you saying it's it's colder i don't know uh, we need we, we need john bounds our tea correspondent yes, we do need our tea correspondents for this well i'm i'm concerned now about what what would happen in the modern era because you'd, you'd have to put um a barista machine in the heart of gold um so would the tea actually be hot enough oh god no you've got a dispenser machine that would make something not entirely unlike coffee. <laughs> <laughs> can the neutromatic drinks dispenser make a suitable brownian motion inducing liquid that can then be used to power the heart of gold i think the conditions have to be uh, absolutely right so you think you you think the temperature isn't important but it needs to be a really good cup of tea i, th- I think it has to be a decent stab at a cup of tea yeah rather than not entirely un- unlike yeah absolutely yeah okay Yep, that's fine. So, so higher than seventy percent like tea, uh, and we're we're probably heading in the right direction. It, yeah, good. Can can I just can I just mention at this point um, for people that may just pick up this episode um, <laughs> randomly um, out of order? We have mentioned the Infinity Drive before, we and we have pointed out that it is the engine that drives the entire plot. Yes. yes. Uh, if you'd like to uh, go back in the archive, you can find the episode where we talked about the Heart of Gold itself. Which would be in the H's? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we recognise that the Infinity Drive is an incredibly important yeah. uh, thing in, in the Hitchhiker's universe, but we've talked about it before, so let's just talk about tea. We have, yeah, exactly. We've, we've also talked about choice and the idea that, um, as, as Danny sort of puts it before, that no choice is ever really made by any of the, of the characters yeah. um, as significant as those made by the Heart of Gold, thanks to the, the drive. So, um, yeah, uh, do... do um, do have a look back in the archives, and you will uh, you will be able to enjoy those uh, stunning insights. What's nice about the uh, about the science of this, because this is what you've you've asked us to speak to today, rather than those those other things, because we've done them, um, <coughs> is uh, I, again kind of pl- plowing back into the archives here when we talked about bistromathics 
Um, I talked at quite great length about um, how much I, I love the description of the of, of the system and the um, the infinite improbability drive. There's, there's a sort of a, a really nice, um, sort of almost like a snake eating itself, like a paradoxical um, description of how they they actually develop it. So the the idea is, um, and jump jump in if if I'm not quite getting this right. There's scientists working on this idea of um, of uh, probability, and they uh, they can't come up with an infinite improbability drive. They can only come up with a finite one um, because uh, their T's not hot enough, and they're doing the math slightly wrong. Um, and so somebody has to find out. I think it was mainly the maths thing. Yes, <clears throat> yeah, it was the well, it was most, most, mostly the maths thing. But they do make sure they put a really hot cup of tea yes. when they finally get to the infinite one. Um, so what they have to do is they have to come up with the probability of being infinite and then feed that into the machine. And so it generates itself. Yes. Um, and it's, 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 it's both uh, a kind of a, a classic little mind box puzzle thing that Douglas builds for us. Uh, and it's also, it kind of speaks to some of those really mundane stories about um, computing that, that we have, like the story about the first quote unquote bug. Um, the fact that, you know, there's, there's just kind of like these little, very, very human stories of uh, someone climbs into the machine and finds that a bug is light laid across some terminals and that's why the computer doesn't work. So they put it in a book and say, I found a bug. Uh, the story in the, in the guide is that it's um, the youngest scientist who cleans things up, just kind of messing around and trying hunches. And then he basically creates infinite improbability. Um, and it feels really, really truthful whilst feeling really, really silly. Um, and it's it's a really nice bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm given to wonder, mm -hmm. given that we can use a finite improbability generator to generate things at a given probability level, mm -hmm. is there any scope for reverse engineering that and working out the probability of something happening and then sort of knowing, like getting an idea of whether, I mean, I was going to say whether that will happen, but then that's just looking into the future because... As I've tried to explain to Danny before, and, and I've not done this well, I don't believe in probability. Um, or I, 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 I understand the concept. I, I understand the concept. But I, I look at things much, in a much more binary fashion. Things will either happen or they will not happen. And but you know there's a probability of them happening, don't you? I do, but that doesn't <laughs> bear into any of my factoring. Probabilities are always flattened out to 50-50 for me, pretty much. There, there is a guy. There is a guy that said this for ages. Mm -hmm. uh, a really smart guy, a favourite writer of mine called Chuck Closterman. Mm -hmm. um, and he, his, he explained in one of his books that the chances of anything happening is fifty-fifty because it either will happen or it won't happen. Yeah, I've just finished a book of his uh, where he admits that he mostly just said that to annoy uh, one of his friends <laughs> who works in statistics. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why it would be an infuriating stance to take, but and I'm not saying that probability doesn't exist. I'm just saying that I sort of don't live my life according to its precepts. So the chances of getting a six on a dice is 50-50? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. I understand. <laughs> I understand how probability works. So it's, it, but it's it's the application of that. So if I were to bet on it, it, if I were to bet on it, I wouldn't because I don't, see i don't see those numbers i just go it'll either be a six or it won't so i'm just as likely to throw a six as i am to not i understand that that's not true 
because probability is real. There's a chance there is, though, you know, 50-50 that it's true. <laughs> Actually, that is a fair enough point, and we should never talk about this again in something completely unrelated. Do you fancy a game of poker ever? You've, yeah, you've tried to do the same thing to me with... with um, the last time we had this conversation, uh, you tried to do that. But poker is a bad example because poker is not just about luck. There's so much more involved in poker. You're 100 percent correct because I, um, I I played poker the other day in a casino for the first time and I won all the games. So yeah. you're correct. It's it's definitely about me and not about. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the skill in poker is understanding the probabilities. Yeah. <sighs> You can, yeah, it's it's fine, it's fine. Like I, I, it's fine. We're never going to reach a consensus in which I succinctly explain my approach to probability, and that I, I, I don't think it doesn't exist. I, I believe it exists. <laughs> I just don't make choices that are based on probability. That is the difference. I bet you do. <laughs> How much will you bet me when you leave the house? Do you put on a coat? Not put on a coat or put on an all-in-one uh, waterproof galosh because it, it's going to rain blood. I think that might be an oversimplification of my approach to probability, which is already arguably less complicated than it should be. It's reducio ad absurdum. It's, redu- <laughs> it's reducing yes. your argument to something absurd, yes. which it is. Okay, good. <laughs> We're not going to solve this in the next 15 minutes. We will solve it because you're wrong. And I you know, just go, I'm, not, I'm very wrong about it. I that. haven't taken a factual position. I haven't taken a position on something uh, about which I can be wrong. I've taken, <laughs> I've made, I've, uh, I've laid out my personal approach to how I make decisions. That's not a right thing or a wrong thing. It is a wrong thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> and I'm going to continue to be wrong and I'm going to continue to read what's on the script or I might not, but I might. And from the thing that manipulates infinity to the very thing itself. Oh, God. Infinity is defined by the guide as bigger than the biggest thing ever and then some. Much bigger than that, in fact. Really amazingly immense. A totally stunning size. Wow, that's big time. Infinity is just so big that by comparison, bigness itself looks really titchy. Gigantic multiplied by colossal multiplied by staggeringly huge is the sort of concept we're trying to get across here. Danny, why is infinity funny? Is it just that it's such a mind-blowing concept that any attempt to explain it is inherently chucklesome? Uh, okay, I've got I've got lots of theories to say about this. Firstly, that uh, that sentence is funny because uh, he did it with a thesaurus, <laughs> and and I'd be willing to bet that that's actually everything in a thesaurus in order. <laughs> I haven't checked. <laughs> But um, yes, you, you hit the nail on the head. We laugh when we're uncomfortable. And um, when contemplating infinity, we should be uncomfortable because mm-hmm. it's very, very weird. With infinity, everything is not only possible, but actually probable. Or arguably has happened because it's infinite. Yeah. Again, that's that. That's my sort of over-flattening. It's the same way I flatten probability. I kind of flatten infinity out to say <laughs> whatever it be, because it's infinite it has already happened and it already exists because that's the nature of infinity that, that is that is one way of putting it yeah that is one <laughs> way of getting you 
No, it is. That, that, that is one way of getting your head around it. Uh, I don't think we should get our head around it. I think mm. if you think you've got your head around the concept of infinity, then you actually haven't been thinking about infinity very hard. Yes. Um, in many ways, it's like uh, it's like Zen. Have you ever like um, Zen Buddhism? Mm-hmm. Um, so in Zen Buddhism, there's a like there's loads of stories that they tell, and they read something like jokes. And they even have punchlines that are kind of non sequiturs. And they are kind of funny, but you're supposed to think about them a little bit and try and apply meaning to them. And then that that moment where you're trying to make sense of the logic of something that is inherently not logical is the moment when enlightenment creeps in. As you know, Leonard Cohen said, like, I like the cracks, that's how the light gets in. Mm. It's best. It's best done with an example. Do you want a Zen coming? I'd love one. I used to love these. I, I I used to love these. Okay, there's one. There's a robber and he travels uh, to the middle of the woods to the monk's house um, at night, and he creeps in, and he's startled to find the uh, Zen monk sitting there, um, uh, sitting says Zen like uh, uh, meditating, uh, looking out the window, and the monk, uh, the the robber goes, give me. Give me all you give me all you got, and uh, the Buddhist monk just gestures his hands and says, "I I have nothing. Here are my robes." And the robber goes, uh, "All right," um, and takes the robes and uh, runs off. And uh, the monk thinks for a bit and he says, "Poor fellow, I wish I could have given him this beautiful moon." Oh. Hmm. Yeah, it, it reads like a little bit of a joke, but it also yeah, it has that cadence. It, it, it also is very handy um, uh, for seducing <laughs> impressionable <laughs> art students. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag me too territory. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. If you can look in someone's eyes and pull out a Zen Cohen, uh, th- there's a good one called Empty Your Cup. Um, a, a, a student goes to a Zen master uh, and right. Okay. Imagine that um, we're in a candlelit room. I've just read your tarot or done some equal, something equally as hippie. Um, I'm looking into your eyes and I'm talking about Zen cones with like quiet confidence. And I'm telling this story. And so um, a student goes to a Zen master and says, I want to achieve enlightenment. And the master says, that's fine. That's fine. Um, do you want a cup of tea? And the student goes, oh, yeah, yeah, all right. And, um, so they drink the tea and the, the, the student goes, how is this helping me reach enlightenment? And the Zen master goes, have you emptied your cup? And the student goes, yeah. And the master looks at him and goes, empty your cup. Reach over, hold their hands. Empty your cup. Put it in the hands. Can you just... Tell me that the, the, there's a there's an expression you've been using, and and I, I suspect some people listening are going to have the same confusion as me. What are these things called? Zen, Zen what? Cohen's K O A N. Yeah. So you you can't you you can't come off talking about Leonard Cohen <laughs> and then start talking about Zen Cohen's. Yeah. I thought this was an internet meme. So <laughs> I thought it was like a Google whack, but with Leonard Cohen lyrics. So you have to find a Leonard Cohen lyric that sounds like it's from Zen teachings. He actually became a Buddhist monk towards the end, didn't he? So he was a Zen Cohen. He was literally a Zen Cohen. Jesus. Have we emptied our cups? Right, that is proof. That, that, that is proof that in the infinite 
in the <laughs> infinite amount of dimensions that we live in, the one that we're living in is actually controlled by somebody with a sense of humour. <laughs> yeah. Or it's just as likely to be not. Fifty-fifty, <laughs> uh, really. 50, 50. But there's six chances. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, because we like to play with scale here, let's go to Islington. The London borough of Islington is where Arthur went to a party and met Trillian in a flat whose phone number mapped to the probability of his and Ford's rescue. Probably was just 50, though. It's also the location of the cave Arthur inhabited on prehistoric Earth, which then turned out to be where Fenchurch lived. John, is Islington the most important place in the universe? Discuss. Have you been to Islington recently? (laughs) No. Because the interesting thing is... London thinks it's the centre of the bloody universe, am I right, guys? Am I, am I, am I right? Oh, great. No, that's, that's torpedoed oh, no. my bit, isn't it? Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. But, so, no, what I was going to say was, um, it, it's got a certain level of self-importance as a, as a place. Apologies to anyone listening from, from, from Islington. Um, I once went on um, uh, a very long run around London and I just... I allowed myself to get lost. So um, in psychogeographic terms, I was very much on a derive. I was just kind of going with the flow and um, finding out where, just finding my way. Mm -hmm. And every time I got to a pedestrian crossing, of which there are many in London, if the lights were green, I crossed the road. And if they weren't, I ran on. That was basically my my planning for this route. That's great. And I started trying to orientate myself onto uh, some sort of circuit. Yeah, Ian Sinclair ain't got nothing on me, Danny. I like it. This was a, a... this was a lot of fun. Um, and, yeah, London, um, there are bits of it that are doing less well. There are bits of it that are doing quite well, but it's very London. It A lot of it feels the same unless you're in the main tourist bits. Turn up in the middle of Islington and you know that you're in Islington and you know that Islington's got a sense of itself and an, an identity. And the thing is, is that... Islington geographically is next to um, uh, your, your, your shore ditches and all these other places. So it's kind of part of that scene. And as the canal goes through there, um, you're starting to get into the kind of all the, all the, all the tech industry stuff. So it is a part of London that does feel that it is the centre of something. And, and even from a London point of view, I think Islington has got a, a certain... Uh, yeah, certain identity and a certain self-awareness. And I think it's really interesting in terms of what we know about Douglas and the things we talked about in the past, that actually if you put Fenchurch and you put um, Arthur in this area now, today, you'd be putting them around all the tech people. And we know that Douglas had that kind of real interest in that, in that scene. So that's a nice quirk of history. It was probably a 50, 50 chance that it was going to go that way. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very nice place and it has um, a, a clear sense of itself. Also, and this is another probability avenue for us to go down. Or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> depending on depending on who you believe, the blues are the key to unlocking Monopoly. Yeah, no, you don't mean the colloquial name for Birmingham City. Islington is in... No, no, I mean the blue squares. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the, the first block of three on the run after go. So you've got, on, on what I would call a classic Monopoly board, which is a London Monopoly board, you have um, Old Kent Road, Whitechapel Road, and then you have... Uh, Islington mm-hmm. and um, 
it's one of those sort of bluey turquoise colours. Um, those ones, they give you the lowest upfront cost and they give you, um, uh, they're fairly cheap to buy the hotels on um, and they give a better return than the browns. There's three of them, so there's there's a better probability, no matter what you say, Mark, that someone's going to land on them. But also because there's so many chance community chess cards that tell people to go back to go, it drives traffic onto that run much, much more quickly than it does onto the, onto the other ones. So the Monopoly universe, the Angel Islington is a winning square. I thought that, I thought this was going to be, uh, you're going to talk about the Monopoly hack. If you've not heard how to win Monopoly every single time. No. Basically, you buy whatever, whatever you can, everything, everything and whatever you can. Right. And you trade and you uh, exploit the rule that if somebody lands... This sounds like this sounds like a strategy. <laughs> uh, okay, but you're, explo- you're exploiting rules that people don't use. Right. Uh, so you exploit the rule that if somebody lands on something and they don't buy it, then anyone else can buy it. Right. Which is in the rules. And then you buy all the houses that you possibly can. Right. And that way, if you buy all the houses, no one else can buy a house. So you don't trade them up to hotels at all. Right. You literally monopolize the houses and no one else can win because no one else can buy a house until you you trade up to a hotel. Christ, so you actually just play the credit crunch out in Monopoly? Yeah, you, you literally buy all the houses and then keep them. Wow, and I just said Monopoly, but that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's, that's mon- the Monopoly hack. Wow. The, so it turns out the Monopoly hack is just standard capitalism. But it's also, yeah, it's, it's not a hack, it's a strategy. Yeah, I've never tried this out because I get bored after about the fourth round of Monopoly and wander off and play something else, um, even if it is with myself, like just because like, board games are shit. Uh, I'd, I'd contest that, um, but I do think Monopoly's shit. Yeah. But it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those games that people who like games are very, very anti. Because your, your pandemic is going to be better. Because your ticket to ride is going to be more length. Oh, you could be a train mogul instead of a housing mogul. Okay. I'm going to play with my willy for a bit. Well, that is it. That's that's all you get in this week. Um, thank you very much for listening. You can find the show notes and all the rest of the things at btlpodcast.com. You'll find Danny on Twitter at Probably Drunk. You'll find John at John Hickman. And you'll find me at I Am Stedman. We will be back next week. So until then, won't you share and enjoy? I'm really hoping that everybody gets that the joke is that I was a garbage person that thought that having sex was more important with actually making connections with people. If it did come across that I was laddishly laughing at like, oh, aren't people easily to manipulate? That's that's like that is not what I want to get across. Good disclaimer.